This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. This is Mark Miller, Editor-in-Chief and host of the DevSecOps Days podcast series. This is our fifth broadcast in the Epic Failures in DevSecOps series. Please subscribe to the podcast on DevSecOpsDays.com in order to receive notice of upcoming broadcasts and free workshops. In today's show, I'm talking with Aubrey Stern. Aubrey started her career as a network engineer in 2004. She is now a DevOps consultant who has worked with brands such as Travelodge, Pizza Hut, and Arcadia Group. Aubrey is technical lead for the enterprise cloud platform at Nationwide, and she contributed the Tale of the Burning Program chapter in the newly released Epic Failures in DevSecOps book. Welcome, Aubrey. Hi, thanks for having me. We're here to talk about your chapter now. And I have to ask, the first thing is, the name of your chapter is The Tale of the Burning Program. Well, what's going on with that? So, uh, I don't know, the best way to maybe describe this is that I had a friend join um, recently, and one of the guys that I worked with described the program to him, and he said, it's like a train. And the train's coming into the station, but as it's coming into the station, the whole thing's on fire. And we're all standing on the platform, desperately trying to put the fire out as it comes into the station. And and that was the actual explanation that um, that was given for the program. <laughs> so I, I don't think it was just me that thought this, but um, I, I would say that, yeah, heavy, heavy, heavy damage to this program. And um, it's very unlikely it will ever come to fruition. Is there a background you can give us on the program? I, I try, like, this is one of the things we have to be as anonymous as possible. Mm -hmm, um, sure. I'm, I'm sure people are able to work it out, but um, it's a replacement piece of software um, for something that they already have that's been developed by a partner. The partner has done a relatively poor job um, with developing the software. Um, there's about 0% test coverage over something like two years of work. It didn't take long to figure this out, which is why... There's something in there that as one of the one of the titles of the book was um, or the titles in the chapter was um, our biggest problem is DevOps um, and I remember the chap saying that to me and <laughs> whenever somebody says like our biggest problem is DevOps or you know you, you take you talk to a few people and and, and you usually find out that there's low test coverage there's low maturity in, in being able to do um, build cloud native applications um, there's a, a lack of understanding in things like test like test in production. And, and quite often when they, they think their biggest problem is DevOps, it's a shift left mechanism, right? So it starts mm -hmm. earlier than that, it starts in development. So you're, you're saying that it's manifesting in the deployment of the application, which is what most people think DevOps is, the deployment and pipeline piece. But actually that's occurring much earlier in the process. Is this type of scenario, this burning program, is that typically when you're called into a project, when all hell's breaking loose, let's call Aubrey? Uh, yeah, I think sometimes, uh, for sure, I've been through quite a few of these now. I'm more picky about the work that I take on these days. Um, for me, it's a case of, I'm not keen on the word empowerment, but I, I need to have enough control to make the changes required to to get something right. So if you have cultural issues, 
sometimes we all know there are people that that are willing to go on this journey um and sometimes there are people that aren't and they're just not the right people to have in the room um and i think it's it's better to make those changes earlier um and to try and like breed in the right culture as as quickly as possible I, i like to run flatter teams i won't say flat because i think that's almost impossible um, there's always a hierarchy, whether you like it or not, whether you want to acknowledge it. And I, I think there's always a, a good case for strong leadership. But I try to run as flat a team as possible. I have a rule that everybody's equal when we walk into a room. So we try not to make unilateral decisions. We try and make sure that it's a group consensus, even if you know I'm the person that, that doesn't uh, win the argument or um, put my case together well enough and we go with a different solution. Sometimes you have to suck it up and go with the majority. I want to go a little bit deeper into this idea that you just talked about is our biggest problem is DevOps. Yeah. We need clarification on that because everybody is screaming DevOps and DevSecOps is the way to go. Yeah. And yet your statement is that's the biggest problem that we have. Yeah. I mean, uh, for, for someone to say that to me, I was really shocked. I come from that background of development. So I understand what good development is. Um, I understand that you know, if I'm going to drive quality, then it's not something that I go and write code and I pass to a team of testers. Obviously, I'm the best person if I wrote that code to write the test for it, right? That's that's unequivocal. Like, nobody would argue with that. I think we have this concept of testers in development. Um, and for me, I think when you're doing, like, fringe QA and, and fuzzing inputs and doing stuff that developers, I guess, tend to not do, then I, I can see a value to having... Um, testers in the process but uh, having testers in the mix of developers I find often dilutes the responsibility and and for me Mm. developers have the ultimate responsibility to build the test so if I was going to write a piece of production code or say change something that was in production then I would need to write um, feature flag mechanisms and I would write tests that test that the feature flag had kicked in and that there was an alternative behavior um, manifesting and I would write an external monitor um, for that feature before anything had even hit the production environment. And that's when I would probably start to use things like traffic splitting um, and automatic canary analysis to figure out if I was comfortable with the error rates from um, or whatever my measures were, my SLIs were with that um, feature. All of that stuff, that's not something that happens like further down the line. That's a development thing. But there's no one else responsible for that but somebody who's doing development, right? So it's a, almost for me, a redefinition of what we believe engineering to be. So we say developers, and I'm trying to train myself and a lot of the teams I work with into saying engineers, because I think it's probably a better term for what we do. The dilemma I have is nowhere in the discussion that you just talked about is the security team involved. You're talking about the developers themselves becoming the security team to monitor themselves. That doesn't jive with me. Yeah, um, so absolutely. I, I think there's, it's one of those things, right? If you do stride um, over a new feature, you're going to yield something that's as good as your current security knowledge. The, the challenge will always be that you're not in control of security. So the cadence is something that's completely out of your control. It's outside influenced. So while you might be good, maybe you're really hot on security, you're as good as your current knowledge. And I think that's something that changes every single day. So we do need people involved that focus on that. Um, one of my current challenges is how to maintain um, a dedicated red team. Um, how do you keep those guys focused? How do you keep them current? Um, is it a case of just using partners and rotating them in every six months to, to keep things fresh? Um, it, it's something that I'm actually currently trying to work through. 
development and uh, security in development is definitely something that is a responsibility of the developers and it needs to be like thought about for example if you were going to write a, a virus checker or, or to implement or wrap something that was an online SaaS virus checker you would never go and put the test packages that had a virus on your machine right you would go and wrap those and put them into a sandbox environment and, and then do the tests that's not something that somebody would tell you later on down the line. That's something that as a developer, as a person writing this piece of software engineer, you would need to go and work through and figure out, okay, I've got something that's risky. I don't want to put this on the metal of my machine, especially if I'm writing this code. I'll need to sandbox this and think about how I test this. Like that, that is something that happens at the beginning. One of the things that Gene, Gene Kim talks about in the Phoenix Project is the transition of the perception of the security guy. In, in simple terms, what Gene comes down to is security has to be good enough. It's not this all-encompassing thing with a bunch of checkboxes anymore. How are you making that cultural transformation to good enough security? Yeah, the, the, the security guy is typically the no guy, right? Um, <laughs> and I've had a lot of experience with the no guys. And they again, it's it's I think it's one of those things that is conflated with or, or it probably compounded because they they live in a specific domain and they're not always exposed to our domain and i think it's quite easy so i tend to embed people a lot um so at nationwide we have embedded security people that work um with the squads um and their time is literally there to be drawn upon to help them figure out if they've paid enough attention to security if they've missed anything uh, to, to provide a second pair of eyes to also help through um, processes like risk and compliance um, and to figure out um, obviously as a society we have um, various organizations inside it and one of those is the risk and the security uh, and compliance organization and each one of those have their own requirements those guys are sort of there to also help us to walk through those and to, to tick the correct boxes as well as do the right thing in your chapter after talking about the biggest problem devops you also talk about discover like a mother. Yeah. What were you trying to get across on that? So it's about spending the right amount of time to figure out what's gone on um, and maybe why it's gone on. When you're walking into a, somewhere that is probably unfamiliar and you don't have the history, maybe they don't have um, uh, an architectural decision record system set up. Um, ADRs, if you don't know, a, a really light way of keeping or lightweight way of keeping um, decisions. Um, and writing down. So if you decide to use a particular piece of SaaS software or you make a technical decision to use one product over the other, it's a really great way of recording those decisions. Um, and a lot like postmortems on, on day one, I like my engineers to come in and read through the postmortem repository and to read through the architectural decision record repository and to understand why we made those decisions. And I guess when you're coming into something that's burning, often you don't have that history. And it's a case of having to try and figure out why those decisions were made and what the rationale was. And often was it um, a, a misunderstanding in terms of what the actual problem was? Have they somebody gone all in on a monolithic solution when they should have done um, the lean approach and, and tested the hypothesis? Is this the thing that's broken? You know, how much does it yield if we go and fix this? So um, I've learned from experience not to jump in too quickly and to spend enough time understanding the people and the players and, and the direction they're traveling in. It's interesting, you implied there that there is ROI in security as you're going through this process. How are you measuring uh, the efficacy of 
security as part of the development process. I, it's, it's one of those things that I guess is difficult to measure. Um, there's tooling you can go and use. So you can go and use like the dynamic analysis tooling, things like Detectify um, to go and launch active attacks on your site. And I guess- How does that give you a dollar value back or a pound value back? Uh, it's, I don't know. You would, do you have to work the other way around and, and, and look at how much would it cost your business if you were exposed or affected or compromised? So overall, I think that's very difficult to break down. You can assign that number to like, if we lost this part, if customer data leaked, we would be fined X amount from uh, whoever the regulatory body was. This would damage our brand irreparably by giving consumers false confidence. If you can work that out, then that's pretty much how you apply a value because it's it's hard to quantify what sort of attack you might end up dealing with, um, which one would be successful, um, whether it's partially or wholly uh, successful, but ultimately you're probably gonna have to look at the overall damage to your brand and your business and, and, and the fines that you receive from, from leaking customer data. What about measuring how much it would cost to fix something downstream as to opposed to fixing it earlier? That's an interesting one. Again, I'm always pushing to do things much earlier. It feels like devil's advocate when I say this, but I'm a very big fan of engineer for the current problem rather than tomorrow's. I think as engineers, we're very, very good at trying to make things extensible and modular. That's almost an engineer's favorite set of words. And we try and make the solution extendable or, or, or all of this. None of those things guarantee that the extensibility and modularity will actually be used. I often try and push my engineers to focus on the current problem that we have, the thing that needs to get built today. And then tomorrow, if we need to go and extend it, then we will work on the modularity or extensibility of it. And the same goes for security. So let's put the security in early for the current thing and do the right thing. And then later on, if we have to go and change that because we've changed the solution, then that makes sense too. That plays into the whole idea of minimal viable product. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I'm from a startup background, so I pretty much live and breathe that that mentality and that that ethos. I also think it, it, it helps you to do the right thing. So Agile was very much built around this about doing the, the minimum thing and getting that early feedback. And I think every time that you try and save yourself work in the future, and I remember a really good argument that um, we had at Arcadia over the use of um, feature flags. And um, the guys had this solution that was going to take three weeks. And I was really surprised because I actually thought it was going to take four hours that afternoon to do the work. And they said, well, we're going to have this problem where feature flags might clash with other feature flags. So we have to go and figure out how we can turn them on and off in real time and all this stuff. And I said, well, that's great. But we were only planning on doing one feature flag. And I said, well, if we did two, they still might not clash. If I got to 10, there's still a good chance that none of them clash with each other. So you're designing for something that you that logically, I agree, probably will occur at some point, but hasn't. So why would we waste the time up front when we can get the value immediately by, by doing the smaller amount of work? The third thing that you cover in your chapter in a major way is seek forgiveness, not permission. I think that uh, for me, that's a life choice. <laughs> that's yep, that's yep. the way I live my life. Live and die and by that one. <laughs> how, how do you integrate that into a developer in an engineering environment? It takes a certain level of maturity for sure. Um, so I think it's about talking to your peers and co-workers and making sure that you are making the right choice and that this is the thing that we should be doing rather than going renegade. 
if people don't understand the choice that you're making, then that probably suggests that you either pitched it wrong or maybe it's not the right mm -hmm. thing to do. I try not to make unilateral decisions. I find them uh, frustrating when other people do them. So I try and make sure that as many people are involved as possible when we do make calls to do something. As I said, I'm quite picky about the contracts that I pick up these days, and I need to make sure that I've got the right level of control and influence and ability to to work things the way that I feel they need to be worked. With the engineers, I think you eventually, um, if you've done enough work together, then you will have that trust. Um, Patty McCord talks about this in a book, um, Powerful. Um, she pretty much built the Netflix culture that um, people aren't don't need to be empowered, that they are already empowered when they walk through the door. Um, and it's usually the, the culture that they're injected to that changes them. And I think what we need to do is make sure that, that they know they have the ability to do these things and that if it's the wrong thing, there are consequences. And if it's the, you know, the right thing, there's reward. And, and it's about balance and maturity. And if you're somebody that consistently does the wrong thing, you're obviously going to be held to account by your peers. And if you do the right thing, then you're probably going to get praised by them. Um, and there's no harm in, in going to your peers and, and saying, hey, you know, I've got, I think this is the thing that we should do. This is the right thing. Let me table it, you know. As a leader, I feel responsible for creating the culture where people can table their ideas and, and change the direction of the ship confidently without any ramifications. I have to create that environment. Interesting that you would bring up peers at this point, because that is a critical part of this whole equation, isn't it? Absolutely. Having um, people that you can learn from um, and look up to who have experience, um, all really important things in, in forming a team. I'm, I'm just going through um, very much this, the same exercise at Nationwide. Um, it's a little bit of empire building as I'm bringing in all the people that I thought were fantastic to work with who share my value in terms of culture um, and share my vision for uh, a great place to work. Consequently, those people are all being drafted in the moment and we're reforming teams uh, and, and thinking about what, what do we want 2019 to look like with the right people? How do we breed an open culture? How do we make sure that um, people have a voice when they're in a room, that they feel confident giving feedback? You conclude your chapter with three takeaways, and I want to cover each. You have culture. C-level engagement and recognition. Let's start with culture. How does culture play in to the transformation that has to happen in order for DevOps and DevSecOps to get validity within that enterprise? It depends, I guess, where you are on your journey. So if you have people that are shifting roles from where they've traditionally been like a developer, uh, and now that person is doing more infrastructure as code and more cloud native uh, operations in the cloud, you need to build a culture where it, it's safe. And, and I hate using the word okay to fail, but where it is safe to, to, to make mistakes and to fail and to be wrong. Otherwise, people are, are probably quite hesitant to do that. And I think if you're running a true DevOps culture, we uh, embrace these mistakes and we try and look for the value in them. So when we post-mortems, it's about extracting the value from the failure. So it's not necessarily that, that a failure is a good thing, but there's value in failure, and it's about extracting that. When you talk about culture, I'd like to get a definition of what your perception of culture is, because I have people at the C-level suites that I talk to that deny that culture is important here. Maybe they don't understand the definition of culture. Okay. So first of all, I want people to come in and enjoy what they do genuinely. Like remember when you come into a team and you 
enjoy being an engineer, that you don't loathe your job or you hate the people that you work with, that you genuinely enjoy um, being an engineer. One of the first exercises we're doing this year when people get back next week is to go and brand their squad. So we have an actual person coming in to draw an infographic and to help them brand themselves up and come up with a name and what their values are and their identity and how they embody the shared values that we have as a platform. I think that's really important to, to give a sense of ownership and to, to really get people to buy into it. I want their hearts. I want them to love what they do. Um, and at the same time, I know that what comes from that is that when those people develop and build things and push features onto the platform, that they understand also that it's a reputation. It's their team's reputation. And so they're thinking about, how do I own this? You know, Do I have support in place? Am I on the rotor? Do we have the adequate amount of cover? They're starting to own this better. One of the things that I struggle with here is you are talking about the benefits of culture and organizing around culture, but you haven't defined what culture is. So I guess I've worked in plenty of hostile cultures where people don't want to listen to you, where you don't. What have is a culture? I mean, when you say a hostile culture, what is the culture? And I'm, I'm not trying to. Well, I guess I am. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, what are your values, right? So, so okay. your culture is almost defined by by your values. So, the value that everybody or the principle that everybody has an opinion um, and we're flat when we walk into a room and that we do things on a democratic scale so i would never unilaterally decide this is the thing that we're doing that breeds a particular kind of culture that people feel free to come uh, and open up their ideas to the rest of the platform rather than thinking there's no point me saying this because it's going to fall on deaf ears and no one's going to listen to me I'm going to get called an idiot or something, and there's there's no reason for me to literally just come forward with what I'm thinking. Like that breeds a particular culture that we're open and that we're open to to hear people's ideas, and that comes from a value. My problem is with the use of the word culture. I think as you were talking, I was thinking it through. When I think of culture, like when I come to London to see you. In the UK, there is a certain culture in the UK. It's a little more formal than it is in the United States. As far as dress is concerned, as far as language patterns are concerned. When I go to teach in China, the culture there makes it so that people can't ask questions of the instructor because it's seen as an insult yeah, that I yeah. haven't taught well. And so I'm thinking, is culture really what we're talking about? It's mm -hmm. principles of values, right? It's an all-encapsulating term, I think, that, that roll up your principles and values. So we, I wouldn't talk to you in a lift in the UK, right? I would never <laughs> wouldn't do that. Right. In Vegas, people do it all the time. I remember how weird it was people asking me about the weather and what I'm going to do today. And I was so shocked when people actually spoke to me in the lift. I thought we would never do this in Britain. Um, it's, just, it's just one of those things you don't do. But it's that un unwritten um, thing, right? It's a behavior that's instilled. So maybe it is a culmination or an encapsulating term for behaviors, um, principles, and values. Maybe that is what culture is. I like that. The unwritten rules of participating in this environment. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and, and you get a feel for them, don't you, when you come in, and it's kind of like, I think people um, are doing more open interview so when we we spend time with people um i know that when i run my interviews for engineers that i try and have groups of two or three go through and talk to these people and then i'll send another group of two or three in and i'll keep doing that until 
we have an idea if it was if it's the right fit for us as a as a, a group and i and i do that because i don't like echo chambers so i always make sure we have a diverse set of people to go through this exercise and at the same time i also want that person on the other side to figure out if they want to work with us if all these people they're meeting could be their peers if they're excited to work with them if they're the kind of people that they're going to enjoy spending time with that's really important for us the second thing that you have in your list of takeaways in your chapter is the C-level engagement. At All Day DevOps, you know, we have about 30,000 people attend that each year. And one of the things that people are starting to ask us for now is, can you do a C-level track? Can you talk about leadership and management around DevOps and DevSecOps? Take a shot at that. When we're talking about C-level engagement, where, what are we looking for? Uh, I think you're looking for direction of travel to start with. Like, what are, what are the things that I should be looking at? I think it's useful to understand some of the tooling. I think um, the methodology, so test in production methodology, why, why do we value uh, durability in our testing? Why do we value our monitoring observability over um, environments? Understanding things like that mean that we can potentially change or enable the direction of travel for people to explore this being able to understand how we use modern development techniques and DevOps techniques to carve up risk and to make things less risky, which means obviously that the business would be affected less if there was a negative outcome. A lot of that stuff isn't conveyed in the best way. I've been involved in plenty of religious wars over technology. That's always been uh, definitely interesting the, f the few times that it's happened. I've been quite frustrated sometimes when you find that the channels to people who are C-level are limited um, and again you when you're flowing through somebody with um, a personal agenda for a particular outcome it's frustrating when you're not able to say your piece um, or influence in the correct way essentially you're looking at a unilateral outcome anyway from from that person I, I find that frustrating and I think being able to give c-level people uh, the right tools um, and the right understanding to make better decisions is really valuable with all the projects that you've worked on, have you recognized any overarching patterns about the C-level suite that gives you buy-in? Obviously, there are a lot of C-level people that don't understand what we're trying to do. Yeah. What does the one? What do the ones that look like? How do you recognize them? I remember a, a guy explaining something to me once, and I thought, you know, it's funny the way he said that because I've always thought the same thing. And he said, what we need to do uh, is wait for them to all die. Um, and then they'll be replaced with people with fresh ideas and because they're all dinosaurs. And I thought, God, isn't that interesting? Because for a long time, that was my perception that all these C-level guys are just these dinosaurs who uh, are completely out of touch and have no idea. Um, and they're just being led in, in random directions by people who also don't know what they're doing. Because obviously, if you don't know what you're doing, you'll hire somebody else who doesn't know what they're doing. And, and then God knows where you end up. That's not always true. Um, I happen to be working for some really fantastic people at the moment. I love the level of engagement that I get, the amount of time that they're able to put aside to be involved in the things that I'm working in um, and working on um, and the other places in the business without being disengaged or um, abstract from the actual problem. The involvement is there. Um, and that says to me that the outcome for them is important. Um, that they're actually spending time with the people on the ground. If you were going to build a track for the C-level suite, I mean, the, the higher level, what kind of things would that track cover 
or these people, you call them dinosaurs. Yeah. If, if we could transform the dinosaurs, a, a portion of the dinosaurs, yeah. what are the three top things that we would want them to be working on? I think if you could go and explain a concept like how do you carve up a monolithic application, right? So if you have that typical, and I'll try not to name names, if you have that typical um, e-commerce setup with um, a really massive vendor and it's very monolithic and you're on-prem or in a data center somewhere, if you could take somebody through the exercise of breaking that thing apart in a, in a less risky way and moving parts of it to the cloud and to show them the techniques involved in doing that, I think that would be hugely invaluable because they would be able to work out, you know, in an abstract, I could apply this technique here and I would be able to, to go and do this thing. And I understand that I am empowered and able to go and do that. They don't have to know how to do it, but if they understand the technique exists, which I think this is the thing, right? Remember that when these guys were doing the stuff that we're doing on the floor now, these techniques didn't exist. They weren't things, right? The things that the C-level has responded to when I talk to them is, direct alignment with business objectives. Yeah, That's where I think a track would go, is how do you align what you just described with a specific business objective? Yeah, so OKRs and, and, and um, subjectives and key results. Yeah, I think uh, some people do spend time on that, and it depends on how wide your um, C-level team is, right? If you have just three of them, then they're probably going to have, uh, obviously, a very small business. They probably got the time to spend with you. If you have a, a really wide C-level team with more breadth and a huge company, they're going to really struggle to spend time um, closer to the coalface. Again, I, I see the value um, in understanding some of the techniques and tools that we're using. They don't have to be able to do it. Obviously, it's ridiculous. But if they could understand that some of the tools that they had at their arsenal, it just helps in making the right decision that, that this is going to give them the right outcome. One of the positions that can help the most is the upper part of the mid-level management. By protecting the engineering environment from the politics that happen above them. Uh, and a developer, an engineer, people that are building these systems should not have to deal with the politics. For me, that's where the upper mid-level management comes in. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm definitely involved in an amount of politics at the moment, as one might imagine in any business. I also try and spend the time being hands-on as well. I think that I've had a number of people in my career that have influenced me in terms of their ability to traverse the politics side of thing and the business engagement, um, as well as still remaining technically hands-on. That's where I've, I've respected people the most. And it's kind of how I model myself um, on these people that have influenced me in that way. Um, so I, I do something, I think, very similar. Um, but I would always try and make sure that the politics never finds its way back to the people that I'm working with and, and work for me. The third thing that you have as your takeaway here is recognition. There are certain levels of recognition. There's peer recognition, there's company recognition, there's industry recognition. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I really want to talk to you about something, but it's just not the right time because we're not ready to drop it yet. But I'm going to drop something in, in January. And I, do you know what? It, it's a trading card game. I can't go into detail because I want it to be very cool when you watch the video. But we're using things like that to go and drive the the right level of recognition um, and to reward people and to reward at different levels. So um, the idea, one of the ideas with the trading card game is that 
people who work alongside you can reward you and your scrum masters and engineering leads can reward you in their own way um, and that the uh, ELT can reward you in their way as well. Um, so you have these different levels of recognition and rewards that um, you know we're making sure that people are able to, when they feel that it's it's the right time to, to freely give out rather than having to sit there and think, how do I make this person feel value? We're trying to incorporate that again into our culture. The card game itself, is this something that people can use as a team building exercise? Is it just a drinking game? What no, did you no, no. It literally is something that live, lives, uh, it should be embedded in your culture. So there, it's a bot aspect that keeps score. Um, cards have scores, cards have buffs, cards have nerfs. Um, some of the cards um, have really bad things. So if you're a particularly difficult person in meetings and you're interrupting people at the same time, then your coworkers have the ability to play a particular card Mm -hmm. um, that requires you to go and put your hand up and, and ask to be given away so that you can speak. Um, and it's it's a kind of like a more passive way and a kind of fun way of just saying, hey, that's you're being a bit too full on at the moment. And that lasts for a particular amount of time. Um, and we use the bot to go and track that. So when somebody types in the code, and obviously it's quite visible as well. So there's um, the ability to play that card anonymously. Um, but at the same time, it actually costs points to play that card anonymously. So by using the negative points for being anonymous, we're trying to encourage that actually it's quite visible and that's one of our values to be upfront and visible. So all of the cards are built and designed to encourage a particular type of behavior. That's exciting. Where can people find out about it? I know you're not dropping it for a couple more weeks, but if they want to get on a mailing list, do you have anything set up? Uh, I don't at the moment, um, but I will put something on LinkedIn and Twitter, and, and I think maybe um, obviously I'll let you know, and, and maybe you can help me find the right channels for that. Again, it's a hypothesis, and I think that I don't know if there's anything being done in Agile for a while that's really excited me. And I remember when the Spotify model came out, and everybody was like, ah, that's the thing, right? We're going to go and do the Spotify model. And if you read it, the first thing is like, don't ever do the Spotify model, because it was a thing that was right for us at a particular time, at a particular mm -hmm. level of maturity. And it was an organic thing that, that that fit their needs. And it was more about them giving that back to the community and saying, hey, this is a thing that worked for us. And I think about what might work for you. And this is the same thing. So you know, how, how do you do a better job um, in Agile and creating that culture and that team? This is a hypothesis. It might be terrible. I have absolutely no idea. But I, I'm going to give it a go. And, and we'll write about it. And um, maybe some people will try it. And, and maybe it's just a complete disaster. Who knows? You use recognition as your third takeaway in your chapter. And the recognitions that I think of are your peer recognition, your C-level recognition, company and industry recognition. What did you have in mind when you had recognition as your takeaway? Interestingly, we have in, in, in the card game, we have a, a bunch of awards. Like, so we have um, breakfasts for people just to say thank you. Like, so if you go and play that card, like we might give you, one of the Scrum Masters may give you a card that says like a free breakfast and we'll, we'll hook you up for breakfast. And that's, I think that's a pretty cool thing. We have like a, a, a night. Hold on now, hold on now. Yeah. So, uh, I, sorry, got to get into the game. I know yeah, you're yeah, yeah. Close. <laughs> So you've got a deck of cards yeah. that are giving uh, given out at the beginning of the week and anybody can play them. How are they distributed? So they're seasonal um, and, and you get a pack um at the beginning of the season at the moment we think a season is is two to three months we need to go and lock that down 
um, and you'll get like this regular pack of cards, and it, it gives you the ability to to give recognition to your teammates. So you could give them something where they're rewarded. We might go and get some food for you, or get some pizzas in, or something. And then at each, um, so scrum masters have a particular set of cards as well, both good and bad. Um, our engineering leads have those cards. Our executive leadership team have those cards. These and are we, physical cards. They are physical cards. That's the fun part is that they are actually physical. And then you go to Slack and you type in the codes um, and and then that keeps score in terms of like it asks you who you're playing against the card, um, whether you want that card to be played anonymously hmm. um, and it will hold the score. Um, and so obviously there's prizes for people with the best score. And I think it gamifies a little bit, um, you know, driving the right behaviors. And also it helps us to identify early when you see, you know, cards being played consistently. If there's a trend, then maybe that tells you early on that there's a problem with somebody that, you know, again, it's not always easy to see these behaviors manifesting, but this might help us to see them manifest earlier and to catch them and maybe step in and intervene and help. Fascinating. Is there a digital dashboard? Uh, yeah, so that's one of the next things that I thought. So just actually in line with, um, we're doing things called DevOps dojos at the moment. Um, and we ran the first one of those um, inside um, nationwide before Christmas. And the idea is to take a very small group of people, uh, four or five, with one person to lead and to work through uh, a hypothesis together. So our first one was, um, can we do open tracing between two microservices? Um, so that was a case of building a, a self-contained ELK container, um, deploying to AKS on Azure, um, learning how to do a pipeline for that, learning how to do Terraform, Circle CI, uh, to deploy all of that stuff to the cloud um, and to ultimately end up with two microservices that had written um, with open tracing between them, which was really cool. And that took three days to do. And what we thought would be a really cool idea was to take the game and to have some people build a dashboard for it as part of a dojo to understand like what it takes to extend something. So we're actually using it as a learning opportunity as well. Uh, anticipate a rollout date? Hopefully the end of Jan. Um, I wanted to drop it with a little bit of evidence as to how successful it had been and and sort of what was played. And I also wanted to get a really cool video together and sort of pitch it the right way, because I think it's very exciting. Um, I got knowed by a bunch of people <laughs> when they asked to do this. I thought it was a terrible idea. But again, I think with all hypotheses, it's worth having a go and seeing what happens, right? It, again, it might be the worst idea in the whole wide world. And I can see how it goes horribly wrong. But I can also see how it goes really right uh, and ends up being something very exciting. One of the things that's exciting about being an author is getting the physical books in hand. How is the book doing for you? Ah, really cool. So I gave some out to the guys that did the dojo with me before Christmas, and they were very excited to, to read through that. Um, really great feedback. Obviously, it's very, very nice to be a published author. I don't think I'd ever imagined that I'd achieve something like that in, in my lifetime. So um I've been like, yeah, super excited and lots of kudos from from people and, and, and people that I work with. Um, and generally just people reaching out saying like, I really enjoyed reading your chapter. It's very nice to get comments like that. How hard was it? When we started this process, nobody had authored anything before. <laughs> How hard was it to do? Uh, yeah, it was, I, I just, you, you don't really know what you're in for, right? I think a lot of people, I don't know, I, I, I feel I'm going to get smashed for saying this, but I think a lot of us left this until the last minute. A lot of us are pressure workers. So a lot of us left it until the Sunday it was like before it was due. And we all sat down and, and gave it our best. And then it was a case of, of like refining that. And I think uh, it's safe to fair say that most of us did that. I think there were a couple of early writers in there as well. But I think it came out really cool. It was um, definitely like uh, the revisions and some of the 
changes from the um, proofreaders are interesting. Some of the language differences between the UK and America. I'm obviously a very well-known sweary person, so lots of my curse words got taken out um, <laughs> uh, for better or worse. But I guess, you know, you can see me live if you really want to hear the swear words. One of the things that Chris Roberts and I talked about after the process is we recognized exactly what you just said. Everybody waited till the last week to write, <laughs> if not the last weekend. It was the last write weekend. Chapter. So I had given the authors, I think, a month. Months. To write month. Yeah, we had, we had beyond a month to do this. Okay, right? that's like, two months. Yeah. <laughs> In actuality, it doesn't matter one iota if I gave no. you two months or two weeks. Two weeks, yeah. <laughs> it's no. still going to take people yeah. are going to wait. We didn't wait to the last minute. I, I think it had given people like time to think about what they might write about and how they might write about it. I definitely spent some time thinking about it. I probably spent some time thinking about the structure. It's hard, though, because it's not like code where you can just go and refactor this stuff. Like Words are a little bit different. And so, like reflowing a chapter, or reformatting something can be quite difficult, um, and it just doesn't work the same way as code does. And I guess you know, if you are like have that dead background, then then maybe writing is definitely not your thing. We have been talking with Aubrey Stern. She is the technical lead for the Enterprise Cloud Platform at Nationwide and contribute a chapter to the latest Epic Failures in DevSecOps book. Aubrey, always good to catch up with you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's awesome catching up with you. I don't think we do it enough. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk.